to talk with all by myself. No one to walk with, but I'm happy on the shelf. Hey, misbehaving, saving my love for you, for you, for you, for you. All right, Mr. Bodwin, get ready because Hachi Machi, this is a big, big, big period we're talking about here. And we ain't misbehaving. We're just getting ready to talk about the better part of, what, 70 plus years of time. And, you know, the college board, they're like, hmm, we've neatly fit uh, periods one through six into some nice digestible uh sections. So let's throw in imperialism, the progressive era, World War One. The Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, the New Deal, and World War Two, all in one period. Right. Because, you know, what's what's five chapters between friends really? Why don't we just chuck all of those earth shatteringly important events into one period of time when in fact the last period of time, uh, period six was what, forty years? And yeah. essentially, you know, just a few things here and there. What are you gonna do with that? It's a big undertaking. I mean, I do get, like, the America and the world. I get it. But, man, period seven's a beast. Yeah, no, it is a pretty steep mountain to try to climb, especially if you're learning it for the first time. I mean, we have but, the advantage of having done this a few times, whether that be through college or teaching other classes. But I can't imagine uh, the challenge of digesting all this information for the first time. That's quite a bit. And luckily, our students uh, have us to help break it down. And the, the best thing about this, well, two different things here. Yeah. First off, I just looked at our lessons. We're, we're averaging 47 lessons an episode, and we don't have 47 A-Push kids. So I don't, <laughs> I don't quite understand that. That really is um, speaking to the power of our voices, I think. I don't know. Yeah, it must be. Maybe, maybe people are like, that was so good, I'm going to listen again right yeah. when they're done. Uh, y- yes. I mean, I guess theoretically that's what they're doing. Uh, I think oh, you, I think Bruska might be doing that. You did mention last week we've got some uh, some people listening in other parts outside of uh, Colchester area. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I'm actually going to check right now if yeah. that has changed because our our numbers have gone up a lot in the past week. I have a suspicious feeling that people didn't listen for the first couple weeks, and now yeah. as the AP exam approaches, right. they're getting going. Um, all I, right, here's I will version. share that we did. Uh, we put the URL uh, for the podcast on our 10th grade uh, classroom, Google Classroom. Um, nice. I'm saying that there's a lot of 10th graders that are listening to our podcast, but maybe that's uh, helping to inflate our numbers. I don't know. It, it could. Okay, I'm actually super confused about this. So we have, we have listeners. Oh, you know what? What's that? We probably have random A-Push kids listening because if you search A-Push on podcasts. Oh, because we have listeners in New York, California, Texas, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Washington, Virginia, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, uh, New Hampshire, Michigan, and South Korea. And, and South Korea. Thank you, South Korea. So shout out South Korea. Great country. That's an international podcast, for the record. Um, so that's cool. So people, random APUSH students are probably listening. They probably want us to get to the point now, I guess. They probably uh, also are, are really confused about some of the inside jokes we're telling because... We're making some references to things that only our students should be getting. So they might be super duper confused about some of the things we're saying. And you know what? That's fine. That's the price they have to pay. Like when I said Booska is probably listening to every episode twice, they're like, who's that? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, hey, so listening to it on three times speed so we can get through it a little bit faster for no good reason. 
yeah, for real. Um, so hey, this is our last episode too. So yeah, kind of sad. We got to go out with a bang. Oh yeah, no, we're going out with a monumental bang with the amount of, of material we're going to get through here. No doubt about it. So we should probably jump right in. Uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, um, the period is large. We're talking, uh, you know, 1860s up through the end of World War II. So yeah, boy, that's a, a massive period. And I'm just going to get jump in with uh, with important people as I have done the last uh, several weeks here. Um, so I'm starting with uh, William Seward and uh, Seward, excuse me, William Seward, uh, in his role in the uh, position um, during that time period. Uh, let's see, I've got James G. Blaine and his extension of the Monroe Doctrine. That uh, Monroe Doctrine is going to play a big part as we get through the first part of this period. Uh, Monroe Doctrine going back to the 1820s, but uh, a number of people are going to kind of grab that and run with it and, and expand and extend it to, uh, to their own needs. Um, of course, we've got the Spanish-American War, so we can talk about people like McKinley. We can talk about the newspaper, the muckrakers, the yellow journalists of Pulitzer and Hearst. Um, Teddy Roosevelt's playing his part. Um, let's see. We've got John Hay and the opening of China. There's kind of a, a deep cut there, but I think that's worth mentioning as we, as we talk about expansionism um, in Asia. Uh, let's see. William Howard Taft and Dollar Diplomacy. Uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and his, and his famous Lodge Corollary. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to some of that stuff as we talk about the important things. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is playing his part. Uh, Pancho Villa. Um, you've got your progressive presidents as we're moving forward a little bit here. Um, that, that line of progressive presidents being Roosevelt, Taft, and Wilson. Um, and as we get into the progressive era, we think about Ida Tarbell and her book, The History of Standard Oil. Um, in that uh, reform movement. Um, the famous uh, socialist Eugene V. Debs and all of the things he tried to do and ultimately was unable to do, kind of an uphill battle in the 1890s there when you talk about uh, reform, but also socialism. Uh, they had a red scare, I believe, in that, that time period, so it wasn't great for him. Um, from the legal side of things, Plessy and Ferguson, I'm sure you remember that from your 10th grade, uh, both of those people playing an important role in the Supreme Court uh, case that, that established the notion of separate but equal. And Alice Paul, as we get through here, uh, as we start to take the turn towards World War I and her work, sort of more extreme, uh, in-your-face work with suffrage and uh, pushing for the amendment. Uh, Mr. Hammond, suffrage, that means that does not mean suffering. Am I no, correct? it's actually very different from suffering. It is the, uh, the right and the ability to vote. That's right. That's, so, right. that's important. Um, as we get into World War I, we can say people like Kaiser Wilhelm, um, the famous Zimmerman of the Zimmerman Telegram. Um, Herbert Hoover uh, is doing his part within the Food Administration, kind of uh, foreshadowing where he's headed. Um, and, of course, Black Jack General John Pershing and some of the opening up um, that he, you know, the, 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 American, uh, uh, the American Expeditionary Force, the AEF, um, really kind of playing the metaphorical role of the closer in World War I coming in there with a massive infusion of men and supplies and kind of finishing off World War I uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, and then we're going to pretty much just flip-flop from the, from the uh, progressive era and start doing the exact opposite. And by that, we mean um, being very business-friendly. Um, so we get Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover 
through uh, through that time period and really uh, putting an emphasis on um, business friendly tactics and the expansion of business, which gets us into the the sort of post um, World War One, the, the Roaring Twenties, and the massive expansion of the American economy, um, and a lot of that is um, provided for by these uh, business friendly presidents. Which then leads us, of course. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. The Roaring Twenties lasted forever, right? Oh, yeah. Just like all good times, as we talked about with the boom and bust cycle. Uh, good times, when you're in them, feel like they're going to go on forever. Uh, but history tells us they invariably do not do that, unfortunately. Um, with the election of FDR um, and, and pulling, attempting to pull the United States out of the Great Depression that is starting... Um, Hoover is kind of that, that bridge between the, the boom and the bust. Um, uh, Roosevelt is going to bring that, that well, what we call the alphabet soup, all of these programs that are going to inject uh, millions and billions of dollars into the uh, American fabric in hope of pulling them out of the Depression, the New Deal. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife, is going to play her part. Um, we could talk for days and days and days about the important people uh, that are involved in these uh, different administrations and, and what have you, the, the authorities and what. Uh, but I'll just mention Henry Hopkins from the Work Progress Administration. Um, and then we start to see a fair amount of pushback to the first and the second New Deal. Um, and to, to mention a couple of those people, uh, we'll say Father Charles, <laughs> Charles Coughlin and, uh, and the Kingfish himself, Huey P. Long, um, were very vocal opponents uh, of the uh, of the New Deal. Um, New Deal, big government, baby, big yeah, government. Absolutely. Um, and then we get into World War II. I'm, I realize I'm kind of screaming through this thing here, but it seems like there's just so much content to get through. So I'll I'll continue on here. We the rise of fascists uh, and extreme sort of uh, leaders in Europe and Asia. So we've got the the. The terrible foursome of Mussolini, Hitler, Hirohito, and Franco, meaning uh, Franco not so much in World War II, uh, but worth mentioning um, for this. It's just such an interesting um, um, coming together at this within a you know, 10 to 15 year period that you have these extreme leaders all coming out. And you obviously you can throw Stalin into that group as well. You know, very yeah. small place. Uh, Europe is a relatively small geographical area. And to have people like Mussolini, Hitler, um, Franco, and Stalin all coming out uh, and emerging within a 10 or 15 year period is pretty, pretty unusual and unfortunate the, and unfortunate for the continent of Europe. The age of dictators, for yeah. sure. Um, Chamberlain in the early kind of leading up to that sort of as um, as Hitler is coming to power through, you know, technically legal means um, in, in Germany. Um, Chamberlain is, is hoping to keep him from spreading too far as, as, as Hitler is, uh, is extending his reach and, uh, you know, the famous, we will have peace in our time as the Hitler is appeased in use, the use of appeasement through Chamberlain turns out to not work out so well, um, as Europe is plunged into world war II. Um, we've got, of course, the rise of Winston Churchill, who had been of an important figure in British history for decades. Uh, going back through World War One and previous to that, um, and his uh, leadership role uh, for Great Britain, and uh, a couple of uh, important Americans. Of course, we've got Eisenhower and uh, Truman, who would both become presidents, but also playing their own massive roles uh, 
uh, for their own reasons in World War II. Um, that's what I got. I realize it's not an extensive list, but I, I thought maybe the, the content piece for World War, for, well, I shouldn't even say World War II, for, for this massive period would where we, where we would spend most of our time. So um, a lot of people yeah. will probably come up as we continue to talk about this, but the, those were the people that jumped out for me is worth mentioning anyways. Sounds good. Yeah, I think uh, going back to you know the that first part of period seven, we think of at the end of the eighteen uh, hundreds as a time of imperialism. So uh, one thing I'd mentioned is international Darwinism, and yeah. the social Darwinism was an idea that came up in period six of hey, you know what? We're a capitalist society, survival of the fittest in business. Yep. If some businesses are better than others. Yep then they're going to rise to the top and the other ones might die. And that's, that was the idea of social Darwinism as applied to business, but international Darwinism uh, and this idea is, Hey, you know what? Uh, if one country wants to have a larger uh, sphere of influence, if one country wants to have more colonies and wants to be a bigger imperialist country, then Hey, that means that uh, survival of the fittest right. They'll do what they can do. And, if uh, countries want to fight back, they can, but a lot of the times they were not able to. So. Boy, that really ties into a lot of the sort of philosophical underpinnings that we've been mentioning throughout uh, not only the entire course, but in the last 50 to 60 years of these periods is the notions of, um, of like the sort of manifest destiny, you know, moving, uh, moving out, spreading out, gathering more lands, and, and definitely that idea of American exceptionalism in terms of um, we are chosen uh, to do great things and uh, whether you define that as good or not and most people will not define this as good things uh, the creating of colonies um, at the time uh, this idea of American exceptionalism is is definitely fueling the drive to acquire more lands I would say absolutely and speaking of the drive to acquire more <laughs> lands uh, the United States you know liked what they saw when Cuban nationalists fought to overthrow the Spanish colonial rule that they were under. So, um, you know, there's a Cuban revolt in the 1860s. It's not successful. Um, but then in 1895, um, they were essentially trying to get Spain out much like the United States tried to get Britain out, uh, in the 1770s, mm -hmm. but they, um, you know, they had to deal with Spain sending in a dictator, um, general Whaler, mm -hmm. Um, who was brutal. He was called the butcher, killed tens of thousands of people yep. in, a, in an attempt to put down the Cuban revolt. And the United States saw this as an opportunity. And one of the ways the United States acted on this opportunity was through yellow journalism, yep. yellow press, which you mentioned before, Mr. Hammond, with uh, Pulitzer and Hearst. Mm -hmm. um, and yellow journalism is essentially uh, sensationalistic reporting, um, it is, you know, big headlines, it's exaggerations, sometimes it's false accounts. Oh, yeah. um, and in this case, yellow journalism boosts up all of those things that are happening in Cuba with the butcher. And when the USS Maine, uh, the battleship is sunk, then the, this, this yellow press is essentially spurring on Americans to be angry at the Spanish, even though... It looks like it was probably an accidental explosion right. uh, now that we have hindsight looking back on it. At the time, a lot of people thought that Spain blew it up on purpose. Right. Um, and that was a huge, huge spark because that happened in Cuba, um, U.S. battleship. They thought it was essentially an act of war from Spain. And yellow journalism really helped uh, spur Americans to that to that conclusion. Yep. Former hot take of mine from uh, when I used to storm into your classroom uh, was the uh, American use of, of naval uh, – violence in order to justify return violence and i will uh 
use that as an example. I will use uh, Pearl Harbor as an example, and I will use the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Wow, it's funny how mm-hmm. our wars have started over uh, going on in, in 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 international waters, isn't it? Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting indeed. Um, it's funny how you can see patterns like yeah. that when you, when you study enough of it. That's right. Um, so, you know, the United States, uh, you know, wanting to uh, capitalize, essentially uh, went to war with Spain. It was, it was a splendid little war, yep. um, as Secretary of State John Hay called it. Um, and, you know, the Philippines and Cuba are essentially uh, invaded and temporarily taken over by the United States. They would eventually uh, relinquish control of both, but it would take a long time. There were a lot of debates going on in the United States that was like, hey, if we believe in freedom and democracy, but we're holding these colonies and they're under our control, right. what? how does that work out? Same with when we annexed Hawaii. Yes. Um, and, you know, Hawaii, unlike uh, Cuba and the Philippines, did remain part of the United States, um, became a territory uh, right after the Spanish-American War, so in 1900. Uh, didn't become a state until the 1950s. I forget the exact year, right. um, but it uh, it was under U.S. possession. So the United States was trying to expand their reach, uh, and Hawaii is strategic for a number of reasons based on you know, how far it is from the U.S. mainland also. Yeah, I mean, uh, geographically, Hawaii doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of uh, folding it into our, our country, but uh, I mean, let's be honest, uh, as, as the great Wu-Tang Clan said, casuals everything around me, and uh, the dull pineapple people had some pretty serious stakes in in holding on to uh, holding on to Hawaii and and ousting Queen Leleokalani and uh, and of course you know business drives economies and economies drive governments. So uh, if you look at that sort of um, uh, logical one step after another, you can see why suddenly Hawaii is an important aspect for us to hold on to. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I uh, really correctly. That's one thing I've managed to hold on to since, <laughs> since college. I, I've had that one in my brain, and I'm constantly saying it right, and I feel good about that. Yeah, as you should. There, there are a number of words I still uh, words like that that I oh, still yeah. struggle with. Um, so Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who you brought up earlier, mm-hmm. Mr. Hammond, uh, pressures uh, the building of the Panama Canal, um, which essentially uh, – Roosevelt uh, pushes the construction of that um, so that uh, ships can get yeah. in there and uh, can and it can improve the United States' ability both to uh, help control the region but also uh, economically trade and, and be open in those ways. Uh, he also adds the Roosevelt corollary mm-hmm. to the Monroe Doctrine, in which case he says, hey, Europe. Uh, well, at, so at the time, a lot of countries in Central America um, – and South America were struggling economically. A lot of them owed money mm-hmm. to Europe. And Roosevelt essentially said, hey, Monroe Doctrine, even though that was you know 80 years ago now at this point, I'm going to add my own step to it. Uh, and essentially, Europe, we will be the middleman. We will deal with these squabbles that you have, but go through us. Um, and we will we will solve whatever is going on in Latin America. And And some of these Latin American countries resented Teddy Roosevelt both for – uh, his force in helping the Panama yeah. Canal get built and in the Roosevelt Corollary, but it worked out pretty well for the United States. Um, yeah. In the sense that dollar, Europe no didn't get to dollar expand diplomacy its and all that. It, it also needs to be pointed out this sort of minor hypocrisy of 
Roosevelt's uh, saying that he will be the protector and the and the intermediary for for the rest of the Americas, while also essentially overthrowing governments in Central America and creating new countries for the sole purpose of you know, building this canal that he, he wants to have done so the economic uh, opportunities could open up. So I just have to point that out. That's, that's <laughs> true. Um, and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is considered a progressive president. Uh, as we think about the progressive era, oh, yeah. um, we think about you know, the progressive era, and we talked about this a little bit last week, as a culmination of mostly unsuccessful attempts, both in the antebellum era, which is the pre-Civil War period, um, and in the populist, uh, and some of the populist attempts for reforms. Both of those didn't see a lot of success. Right. The antebellum era, we have um, attempts at prohibition. Yep. We have the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 uh, for women's rights. We have um, you know, a lot of uh, organizations like the Liberator, the newspaper, to uh, try to improve lives of Black Americans, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of these things get halted because of the Civil yeah. War. Populists try for some more direct representation. They try for some more government control. Mm-hmm. Unsuccessful because the Gilded Age is pretty corrupt. They don't want to rock right. the boat. Um, so the Progressive Era kind of is finally the time uh, that people are more willing to. Uh, change some of these things. So the progressives um, and it's really, like wanted said, to... It's really the first time that you've got um, influential kind of high-level leaders that are willing to make those changes. Um, you know, you talk about, yes. you talk about yes. that antebellum and, and those other eras. Those are real, a lot of grassroots, um, smaller organizations trying to make change. But once you have somebody like uh, Roosevelt, and I did bad talk a minute ago, but he, he obviously did a lot of great things, you know, national parks and um, workers' rights and such. Um, really, you have to think about change can come and often does come. Real change does come from the top. And once you get a president who's outwardly saying our system is wrong and we need to fix it, that's when those changes can stick. Um, but without having... You know, you think about the antebellum uh, uh, reforms failed because of the Civil War, but also because the government failed to to keep the, the, the country out of war. And that's really what brings that to an end. Um, so it's the top down that those top down reforms that often can can make the real lasting differences. And that's a good point that that the antebellum era has all of this activism, but uh, and the progressive era does, too. And the difference is that the progressive era maybe uh because the leaders were better probably well definitely yeah. because the leaders oh, yeah. were, were better and more willing to do that and also because the leaders weren't uh they weren't as preoccupied as they were you know with the civil war and stuff like that um but we have these these movements like muckrakers or journalists that try to expose yep. problems in society uh you mentioned a couple before jacob reese how the other half lives showed terrible uh living conditions in cities especially yep. for immigrants Uh, You mentioned Ida Tarbell's Standard Oil, which helped lead to the breakup of Rockefeller's oil monopoly. Um, So we have a lot of these examples and the public, uh, you know, starts getting more riled up about these. And then and then leaders act. Um, Another difference um, with this movement is that um it it tried to kind of fix some of the corruption pieces um i think that existed with the gilded age whether that's um changing local governments municipal governments um using direct primaries so that people have more of a control secret ballots uh during this time um 
which whenever I watch uh, like the Iowa caucuses, which were an absolute right, disaster that. this year, I'm like, why, why would somebody want to go stand in a gym and like publicly <laughs> proclaim the candidate that they, um, that they wanted, especially, I mean, I know that for the general election, uh, no states right. do caucuses, but I'm thinking like in 2016, you have Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, both who more than half of Americans right. dislike. Why would you want to go publicly stand, um, you know, and, and potentially polarize your political beliefs for like half the people, you know, I, the secret ballot, the invention of the secret ballot and the use of it um, is, is big for preserving democracy because people who people vote for is that's their right. And it shouldn't necessarily be broadcast. Well, I think, you know, so. the the, cauc- the notion of caucus and, and to an extent, uh, definitely, um, you know, like our town meeting is calling back to the to the idea of that direct democracy, um, one one person, one voice, one vote kind of thing and speaking your mind. But it, uh, you know, in a more modern sense, it's a it's a system, as you said, that really you can you can speak your voice. Uh, you can speak your voice without having to tell anybody about it. You know, your voice, your voice is your opinion and your opinion is your own. And you don't necessarily have to tell anybody what you think, uh, because that is protected by the secret ballot. And I think that that has evolved in a way, uh, the notion of voting and democracy to make it uh, to protect your opinion and to not have to worry about what other people think, which is awesome. Yeah, and in the polarized times we live in today, it definitely helps people be able to get along with <laughs> yeah. each other's stuff. Absolutely. Which is good. <laughs> um, so under Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Square yeah. Deal is a big piece too. So he, um, you know, initially uh, with the railroad strike, Pullman strike, he's siding mm-hmm. with big business. Uh, but then eventually he says, hey, you know what? Let's make a deal that uh, does not crush workers or big business. Let's try to unite them. Um, so... He essentially wanted to uh, do trust busting, which is breaking up of um, the really big uh, trusts that were built, the really big companies, because, uh, sorry, not regulation, um, competition is good. Uh, That's one of the things that capitalism uh, is is solid with. I mean, you see uh, an an example I think of with uh, capitalism is like, you know, for example, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, they all want to come out with the best new show so that they can keep your subscription dollars and that you won't and you won't go somewhere else. Um, or Disney World and Universal want to come out with the right. next big ride so that you'll go an extra day to their parks than their competitors' parks. Capitalism can yeah. be a really nice thing. Um, and if you can break up some of these huge companies – um, then that that's a positive thing for the consumer. I always worry about with cell phone companies, they're consolidating and like Sprint and yeah. T-Mobile just came together. And I'm like, oof, the cell phone companies are, are if, if we ever let them all get together, like if Verizon right. bought AT&T, it'd be kind of scary if they weren't competing with well, each other for a business. Not, but. I mean, it, it, it's going to sound like a long time ago <laughs> to, to 16-year-olds, but the breakup of, of Bell Telephone, you know, Ma Bell, the breaking up of the monopoly is is not that long ago in relative to, you know, within my parents' yeah. lifetime, uh, which, you know, my dad's 74. Um, that's not a very long time ago that, that there was still a monopolistic uh, uh, company that was controlling and, and dictating prices, um, kind of take it or leave it style. And, uh, and that was a, an, absolute mo- uh, an absolute monopoly that was broken up. Um, and now you think about all the sort of regional landline telephone companies and that that's a direct result of that. So it's not an ancient concept by any means. 
No, that's true. Um, so in, in addition to trust busting, uh, trust to increase some regulation, as we know, railroads, uh, there's a lot of corruption in the building of those, um, tries to regulate those, tries to get, uh, protections for people like the, uh, food and drug act mm-hmm. and the meat inspection act, uh, which came from the jung- yep. uh, the jungle by Upton Sinclair, excuse me. Uh, and then conservation, mm-hmm. which you mentioned earlier, Mr. Hammond, uh, you know, putting nature first, uh, and many pre- almost no presidents had done very, that before. Uh, 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 very unusual and new concept. I mean, when you think about the sort of environmental exploitation that drives much of the, of the 20th century for, for Roosevelt to have that prescient idea of, of, of conserving lands. That's a, that's a very forward and progressive kind of idea. No doubt about it. Absolutely. Uh, and then the final thing in the progressive era, I, I, there's a page in the text. I just opened the textbook to find it. Uh, page 446 has this, uh, this little graphic and it's like the causes of the progressive movement. And it lists growth of industry and growth of cities um, and then the effects and, and the couple that I would pick would be for political uh, women get the right to vote and machine politics are in decline uh, for social. We have laws protecting workers. Uh, we have beginning of civil rights movement, settlement houses, birth control for women. Uh, and then for economics, we have some land and water conservation. We have some regulation of business. Uh, we have a federal income tax. So the way I like to think of the progressive era is it's a reaction yeah. to the Gilded yep. Age. It's saying, hey, Look at all that political corruption. Look at the lack of um, social movements that could help people and look at the massive, massive growth of businesses, sometimes at the cost of having employees mistreated. And our DBQ Mm -hmm. was kind of about Mm -hmm. that in the Gilded Age, uh, employees versus big businesses. So the progressive era in many ways is a reaction. And a necessary reaction. It's it's clearly... um the checking of those kind of the unfettered uh, growth of business and the, the immoral and ethical practices that, that result uh, during that age, it's, it's absolutely necessary. And, and, and without the progressive era, it's interesting that that's another potential for a hot take. Like what happens to the United States without the progressive era? Like what happens in terms of workers' rights, in terms of, um, you know, the economy, in terms of how that, that uh, the, uh, the unchecked growth of those business leaders, what would have, how would that have impacted both our economy and our society? That's an interesting what if to kind of to play around with. Yeah, I mean, when you think of <laughs> oligarchies uh, that, that, you know, informally exist in so many countries today, um, and, and, you know, you you know, I'm sure people would argue that that exists to some extent in the United States today. But um, but yeah, if if the progressive era doesn't happen when it does, you're yeah. looking at people like Rockefeller and Carnegie uh, or or, you know, the next line of those people, if if trusts aren't broken up uh, as having some pretty crazy oh, yeah. government influence and, and people of massive yeah. wealth do have government influence uh, today and they have always. But but yeah. it could have been a Absolutely. lot different for sure. So as as we uh, you know, World War One uh, kind of happens you know at the end of the Progressive Era. Um, so World War One starts um, you know it, it starts a couple of years before the United States is going to get fully involved. So 1914 is when the uh, when the war actually begins. We have nationalism, we have imperialism, we have militarism, we have alliances. All these mm-hmm. factors that are creating this war. Uh, <clears throat> the spark is the assassination of. Archduke Franz Ferdinand at Sarajevo. Um, and the United States is saying, hey, right. we're going to be neutral. 
So, uh, but then a number of things test the United States, the sinking of the Lusitania. So Germany torpedoing uh, U.S. neutral ships that are essentially, um, well, in this case, right. uh, it was a British ship, but it had uh, 128 oh, Americans, an, I think. There's another on one, it. by the way. Just um, there's, another, there's another example <coughs> of, of a naval incident leading to America getting involved in a war. I'm just adding to all of information here. Yeah. Wow, that's another one. I didn't even thought of that. That's true. That's very true. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things, so there's the Zimmerman telegram, which makes uh, the United States think that Mexico and Germany could be conspiring against them. Uh, but then the economic links, I yeah. think, might be the biggest one um, as far as the United States is very closely tied yeah. to Great Britain and France, as they have been since right after the revolution. If you guys remember War of 1812, uh, starts in large part because Britain and France are at war and the United States essentially is trying to trade with both of them and is unhappy with the treatment of uh, right. sailors on the seas and different things like that. So, By the way, there's so another Britain one. Britain and France have been essentially... Uh, during leading up to the War of 1812. Wow. Okay. I'm going to... Every seems like it's every pretty war. pretty much every war. Weird. Huh. And I think we're oh, going yeah. to something oh, called yeah. Pearl Harbor too, which... Uh, it's interesting with Wilson's... Um, um, I, I hate to use the word flip-flop, but, I mean, he's elected in, what, uh, 1916 under the idea of he kept us out of war and then um, quickly uh, becomes uh, a war hawk in some ways and, and begrudgingly admits that uh, we have to get involved um, and gives all those reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, that's true. It's, uh, it's an interesting way because you can kind of see it in World War II, which we'll get to in a minute as well, a president that... Uh, publicly seems to want neutrality yeah. and then eventually uh, flips. Although World War II, I think, was a more right. obvious right. reason to flip than World War I. Um, so, you know, as the United States mobilizes, um, they are having to uh, raise a lot of money, but it's also going to positively impact the economy because of what they are making, both for Britain mm -hmm. and France and for their own entrance uh, eventually into the war. Um, so I, I think that you know, what we often see during wars is that there are more jobs for women that are available because uh, the, the military is made up entirely of men at this point uh, still, essentially. So um, we see women contributing on the home front. Uh, we see more opportunities for everybody, for all disenfranchised populations in the United States because of uh, the war mobilization and because of the amount mm -hmm. of people that are going overseas. But what an interesting challenge the United States um, faces, um, not only trying to uh, mobilize an army in a relatively short amount of time, which is, you know, the, by the time World War II, uh, we getting, we're getting involved in World War I, um, we have a relatively small army. Our, our armed forces are uh, not that powerful. They are very small. The, the amount of material that we have is, is relatively small. Um, so the the sort of bringing together of, of this uh, expeditionary force is is asked to create this this force in a very short amount of time. Uh, while at the same time, uh, prescient to what we're going through right now, uh, there's the uh, the Spanish influenza that's going on in 1917, 1916, 17, and I think in uh, the, the second wave in 1918. So um, and, and is is absolutely devastating uh, army bases across the country in places like uh, Kansas and Massachusetts. So. Um, just to get soldiers from from our country to the European theater, uh, there were a lot of hurdles that the United States had to get through or get over. Excuse me. That's a great point. 
and now we think of the United States as this military superpower, but we've been like that for less than 100 years as a country. Um, and it's important to remember that. So after World War One ends, um, the Woodrow Wilson said the United States should have right. peace without victory. Um, so he had this 14 points, which uh, wanted to make freedom of the seas. It wanted to end secret treaties. He wanted to... Um, you know, uh, do a number of things that, that I think a lot of people would mm-hmm. see as positive for the world. Um, and at the Treaty of Versailles, he brought those up. He brought those to the table. But at the Treaty of Versailles, um, the victorious countries, mm-hmm. uh, mainly Britain and France, were more focused yeah. on punishing um, the losing sides than they were of, I think, creating lasting peace. Um, I'll preface my statements uh, of criticizing the Treaty of Versailles that uh, what Germany ended up doing after tr- the Treaty of Versailles uh, is never and can never yeah. possibly be justified. Um, but it's it's helpful to know why. It's helpful to, to understand more of why the horrible, mm-hmm. horrible, horrible regime in Germany um, was able to start. And, uh, and the Treaty of Versailles um, created some conditions in Germany that yeah. made people more susceptible to the rise of a horrible totalitarian Nazi dictator um, than they may have otherwise been. And Germany got crushed. Um, they, they were disarmed. Uh, they lost colonies. They had to yeah. publicly admit guilt for the war. Um, they had to accept French occupying the Rhineland, yeah. which is part of Germany for 15 years. They had to pay money. They, had to, um, they, they, they got beat up pretty good in the, in the treaty. And I think that, um, that that again created an eventual horrible economic situation and a lot of humiliation and anger in Germany, which again justifies literally nothing that they did, yeah. but does help explain. I, I'll make two points here. Number one, I think uh, going back to Wilson and his fourteen points, it's a really good example from history where um, a player in history was unable to uh, empathize or or connect or even let's just say simply read a room um, because he came in as this sort of intellectual. Um, rising above this this conflict and saying we're going to have peace in our time and we're going to figure this out, <clears throat> but ultimately he didn't read the room and understand that he you know the America had not been involved in the war it was not a war fought on American soil that these people were in, were interested in in blame and uh, and punishing Germany because of what happened during the actual fighting World War One so had maybe Wilson been a little more empathetic had he been a little more um, sort of interpersonally aware of what was going on. He could have maybe altered his presentation of the 14 points to make it a little more acceptable to them. I doubt it, but, you know, why not? Worth a shot. Um, And the other piece is, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, You know, for those of you listening that had me and Mrs. Carter last year, we did a, we did a, an inquiry that was the, the, the question was, can peace lead to war? And it is that, that focus on the Treaty of Versailles as a, as a, a building point for um, the kind of a bridge between World War One and World War Two, and I think the point of of seeing the in between years between the wars, the World Wars uh, between 1918 and 1939, is really kind of a halftime of like a metaphorical game, um, or in this case, a war, um, where there was an inevitability uh, of World War One starting as a direct result of of the Treaty of Versailles. I don't think there's any doubt about that anymore, for sure. Agreed. 
And the Treaty of Versailles wasn't even passed in the United States. Um, Woodrow Wilson wanted to pass it, uh, couldn't get approval, and the Senate rejected the treaty, which means that this this treaty that you know punished Germany was also now going to be carried out with the United States right. not right. as one of the key players. Um, the United States wanted to withdraw from the world stage, and ultimately uh, that was something the United States yeah. would come I mean, to regret and never do again. And all that you know, directly related to that, I, I think. Um, without having that intermediary, I guess you could say, you know, that or the the medium of of, uh, of the United States, kind of standing between, um, you know, specifically France and Great Britain, and then Germany on the other side. I think maybe if we had played a role in standing between those two sides in some way, following the treaty, things might have been, um, you know, a little bit softer or softened to an extent, and perhaps uh, we could have aided Germany in their rebuilding. Uh, following the the devastation of the Treaty of Versailles and the devastation of World War One, and perhaps you know again kind of a hot take here, perhaps we could have avoided World War Two at all if we had just been able to be involved with the rebuilding of Europe following World War One. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. It's Ooh, but instead we said cool Roaring Twenties, baby. I like jazz. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, we have jazz music. We have the radio uh, becoming more than newspapers now, entertainment. We have Hollywood. Um, we have movie Welcome stars. Back, we have. How about that? Um, yes, that's right. That's right. So, prohibition ending. We have um, the Harlem Renaissance. Um, we have, uh, you know, Langston Hughes, uh, an amazing poet, for example, uh, as part of the Harlem Renaissance, um, in which uh, I think shows you know the mass migration of african-americans to the north um but then right uh african-americans still facing discrimination in the workforce still facing it gaining no social situations from their, uh, contributions um, during world so, war one also for that matter yeah so again the uh, another um example of how how sluggish and how unfortunate uh America has been. And I think uh, we can also, during this time, quality, if we're talking uh, about the negatives here, we're talking about the, the sort of, um, that sort of American nationalism that comes out in some of the, the anti-immigrant feelings. I, I forgot to mention these people, but um, from my home state of Massachusetts, Sacco and, the Sacco and Vanzetti case, the, the trial, um, they, are, they were known sort of extremists and socialists, um, and they were uh, very poorly convicted uh, of, of, uh, of a robbery, and both were uh, sentenced to prison, and I believe were, were executed for it. Uh, little known. Okay, so a little known side. They were. I actually yeah. did a report on Sacco and Vanzetti uh, when I was a junior in high school. So they were exonerated by Michael Dukakis hey, in 1982. That. There we go. There's the bow on that one. Hmm. Yeah, but again, shows nativism. There are quota laws uh, restricting right. immigration, you know, in the 1920s as well. Two um, percent hmm. was a common one. So um, the uh, Congress in 1924 uh, said that two percent uh, of a uh, of a certain uh, population could come in uh, based on the census of 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 uh, I think it was the census of in the late 1800s that they did. Um, and then there were quotas for people from Asian countries, mm -hmm. Eastern and Southern European countries um, and Japanese immigrants were excluded. So there are a lot of different, um, 
there are a lot of different native nativist reasons, uh, that none of which were were good reasons. Yeah, uh, no, it's for, uh, it's an ugly scene, and, and it's a uh, not an isolated incident. I mean, we we were just talking about the the uh, what was it, the Chinese Exclusionary Act, going in our last period here. I mean, this, these are are, are a, a sadly a oft repeated uh, here is the the restriction of immigration, and we and ironically we we've often kind of. Um, uh, tooted our own horn here as a country as being calling ourselves a country of, uh, made up of immigrants. And yet time and time again, we are closing our doors to specific groups of immigrants um, over the decades, which is counterintuitive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, uh, Ku Klux Klan yeah. during that time is booming as well. Um, so unfortunate in yeah. a lot of ways in the, in the social instances um and then you know uh, the positives of the roaring 20s are that the economy was booming people were taking out credit purchasing things living a high quality right. higher quality of life than they probably should have um, but that boom dropped really hard uh when the stock Wait, market you're saying the good you know, crashes in 1929 forever? um in october huh. <laughs> it's shocking and uh you know when we think about why that yeah. happened so credit was rampant that was a problem people were taking out too much credit couldn't then couldn't afford to pay it back so if people had a lot of credit um that they then owed mm. banks and then they defaulted on it and didn't weren't able to pay it then yeah. banks didn't have enough money it was a whole mess uh distribution of income was uh you know very very skewed um you know a lot of people thought that they could um right thought that they could use the stock market to get rich. Right. So when they were allowed to buy on margin, it let people maybe put 10%, say they're buying you know, $500 worth of stock in a company uh, and it let them put 10% down. So they could put 50 bucks down right. to buy $500 worth of company. Yeah. Guess what? When those people go bankrupt and the stock market crashes, then the, those, those companies that thought yeah. that people paid this much money in their stocks don't actually have that, I mean, that money to take out because people only put 10% trouble. down. So you default. You're done. Um, so those government policies in the 1920s were great in the 20s, but ultimately um, helped lead to some yeah. negative impacts, obviously, in the Great Depression. So we have unemployment skyrocketing, uh, as unemployment, unfortunately, is skyrocketing right now in the United States. Um, so we have farms are in big, big trouble during this time. Um, we have Herbert Hoover losing the presidency to FDR, as you mentioned before. Um, and FDR comes in and he says, I have the three R's relief, recovery, and reform. So relief for people who lost their jobs, recovery for businesses and reform of American institutions. He wanted to make the government bigger, uh, make the government the make the federal government the thing that would get people out and he used fireside chats on the radio to communicate yeah a lot i mean of it, it made you feel like you were just hanging out uh you know next to the fire and, and chatting with your your uncle uh fdr who's going to make everything better and it's that <coughs> excuse me that counterintuitive notion of to pull up an economy out of out of the pooper you really got to spend money and it, that seems counterintuitive and yet that's the only way it'll happen. People will not have that don't have jobs need jobs. And if it's this, this cycle that we talk about a lot with our 10th grade class, when things go poorly, you lose a job. And that means you can't spend money, which means somebody else loses a job, which means they can't spend money. Um, so you have to kind of halt that negative cycle of job loss and, and, and spending less 
and kind of in, find a way to inject um, jobs and money because that's really what it comes down to jobs and, and money and spending, which creates more jobs, which creates more spending, which creates more jobs. And it, and it once the positive uh, cycle starts chugging away, things start to get better. But I mean, we're seeing it now. People are losing jobs, which means they can't spend money. And then somebody else loses a job. And it, it's a downward cycle, a downward spiral um, that has to be halted through government spending. And, and again, that seems counterintuitive that you have to spend money to help out an economy. But that's really, as Roosevelt presciently saw, that was the only way to do it. Yeah, like in our current condition, we, uh, you know, the, the government has, you know, both parties have been working together to, you know, get money in people's hands and bail out small businesses and bail out big businesses. Um, because we right now, we couldn't have gone without small business bailouts. Small yeah. business wouldn't exist anymore after this without that. Uh, because if you're forced to shut down for months, then, you, I mean, right. how are you going to pay the mortgage for the building yeah. that you're in? How are you going to pay your workers? All these different things right. um, that small businesses have to worry about, unfortunately. So we have the New Deal uh, brings in Social Security, which will last a long time. It will bring in a number of other organizations to get people back to work. Mm -hmm. It'll try to help the Dust Bowl farmers who are going through a drought as well as everything else. But the uh, so the New Deal really helps America get back on track. And the thing that yeah, funny about completely that. out I mean, I, is World War II. What we often don't think about is some of the amazing contributions. Um, and really what it comes down to is, is <clears throat> as he would say, uh, Roosevelt was just putting America to work, getting them jobs, which means you're making money and spending money. Um, and that's, that's the simple, simple version of it, obviously. Um, but we think about the massive projects, you know, Hoover Dam and, um, you know, you go to, to Waterbury and the Waterbury Dam is a, uh, is an example of a new deal project. And then of course there, there are the, uh, uh, the TVA, whether you love it or, or hate it, that was a, a big one, the rural electrification. You've got all of the art based pieces where they're, they're making these murals, they're taking uh, pictures, they are recording music you know recording americana in a lot of ways preserving americana these are putting very using very creative means to put people to work so they could get paid so they could spend money and it's it's again simplified version but um we aren't going to be able to survive that without that that stimulus of find a way to get somebody to do. and it's also i think the other the side of that is people feel like they are contributing when they're working um, I don't I don't think Roosevelt just wanted to give handouts. He wanted to make people earn their money. And I think he believed and I think he rightly believed that Americans want to work and earn money and, and be productive. Um, so he didn't just say, here's a handout. He said, here's a job. Go work and feel productive and feel like you're earning your money so that when you spend it, you can feel good about it. Um, but, yeah, like you said, ultimately, um, it is the economic stimulus of of World War Two that finally pulls us out of this Great Depression. Yeah. War machine, baby. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the uh, World War Two, again, uh, the United States starts out being neutral. Um, the 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 aggression of Italy and when they invaded Ethiopia and then Germany, when they start taking back the land that was taken from them in the Treaty of Versailles. Um, we see that, you know, the League of Nations does not work. They're not putting a stop to these things. So. Soon we have unchecked Japanese, German, and, and uh, Italian right. aggression that's going right. to lead to World War II. So um, as Hitler is doing horrific things, um, 
you know, invading Poland and invading uh, eventually France and, and concentration camps, yep. one of the worst things uh, in world history to ever happen. Um, yep. The United States is still declaring neutrality until yep. ultimately yeah. they did have economic interests, but the, the yep. spark. Yeah. And the, and the spark ultimately with Pearl Harbor is a Japanese attack. Um, and that was a horrible decision by Japan in hindsight. Uh, <laughs> World War II from space. Well, I mean, uh, they woke a sleeping the most giant, horrific fighting in the war. And I will say, before um, I even get to that, is um, let's not discount some of the, uh, the atrocities committed by Japan in uh, mainland China and places like Manchuria um, that, that I would say in some ways uh, are not oh, horrific, to, but just horrific. as bad as, as some of the German atrocities. Um, uh, but interesting, uh, the, the sort of, uh, some of the nastiest fighting that happens in the war is in the Pacific and it is based on, um, social and sort of, uh, um, the, the misconceptions that Americans have about Japanese people and the Japanese people have about Americans, um, because we have this sort of other perception of them that we don't have, uh, about Germans because they are. Uh, you know, not to bring too much racialness into this, they are of essentially the same race um, because we have some racism and some racist ideations about Japanese during this time period. It allows us to do some things and make some decisions that we would never have made in the European theater. Um, you know, of course, the atomic bomb is the leading indicator for That's that true. decision, I would say, or that idea. Well, and and the uh, completely unjust, um, oh, sure. Sure. you know, camps, uh, the Japanese internment camps uh, that were fought in the Supreme Court case Korematsu versus the United States. Um, Not a good look. Which again, is a is a black eye for America. Um, America should yeah. never uh, be putting people in camps based on what it's they look like, where they're from, their ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that were being put in uh, more isolated uh, movements during World War II, but to the extent that it happened out west. Um, with Japanese Americans, it's not even close. Not even. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so once the United States goes in, they want to mobilize. Yeah. So they're trying to make hundreds of thousands of planes and tanks. Um, and, you know, the wartime manufacturing of the United States, yeah. Um, yeah. hundreds, over $100 billion. Um, really mobilizes the u.s yeah. to have some let's good be clear this, this propaganda, propaganda to get people into it we, we, we um, like to think that yeah. other people using propaganda but um world war one and world war two is we are just as guilty um and we we think about the silencing of critics uh specifically in world war one with the alien sedition acts um but it's happening it's happening in both wars you're either with us you're against us kind of kind of mentality for sure And and with that, uh, I remember there's a German brute yeah. pro propaganda poster we sometimes use in T-Rev as an example of propaganda yes. where where Germany is this big gorilla yeah. and he's and oh, yeah. carrying Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, that kind of thing. Um, so D-Day uh, is huge. The United States can finally get a foothold in Nazi Germany. The United States, uh, Britain and Canada um, help liberate France in a really complex invasion. You can oh. rewatch World War II from space if you want to watch more about that. Um, but the, uh, and Britain is heroic in a lot of ways in yeah. world war two, because they're hanging on by a thread in Europe and without Britain, if Britain had been taking, taken over early by the Nazis, 
Uh, I don't really see how the United States gets in there. The other country, uh, I mean, so the Soviet Union loses so much in World War II. I mean, after the Hitler-Stalin non-aggression pact is over, uh, the Soviet Union puts more blood, sweat, and tears into the war than anybody um, and helped take down Hitler oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, more the than any of, single uh, country, I would you know, say. Germany in both wars trying to fight a two-front war, although to a lesser extent in World War One because of the um, the Bolshevik Revolution uh, leading into World War One, uh, But really, the uh, ineffectiveness of trying to, fr- to fight a two-front war uh, and, you know, to quote the Princess Bride, never get involved in a land war in Asia. Uh, Hitler does not learn Napoleon's uh, lesson from trying to invade Russia and ultimately trying to get out of there during the uh, winter months. It's not a good idea. And, and Germany's never really the same, you know, after the uh, Battle of Moscow, the Battle of Stalingrad goes on. Stalingrad goes on for, what, more than a year, essentially, uh, decimates the German forces in there. And I don't think Germany is ever really the yeah. same after that. No, I don't either. And, uh, and ultimately... That's going to set up no, a lot of things in the Cold War, but we're not talking about that since it's not on the exam. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, so the United States comes out of World War II looking really good because the United States yeah. loses way fewer troops than the Soviet Union and a lot of those European countries do. Um, and the United States jumps in late. The, the battle is not fought Correct. in U.S. territory at all, with the exception of Pearl Harbor. Um, so the U.S. comes out of that as the preeminent mm. world power. Uh, both economically and yeah. militarily. Um, so ultimately it works out well for the United States right. despite the devastating Absolutely. consequences. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, um, so it's the springboard. It's the launch, the launch pad, whatever you want to call it for, for, uh, for the United States is the, in the golden age of the 50s going into the early 60s as a world power, for sure. I mean, it's the fall of, of Great Britain as a world power. I, don't, I wouldn't call France as a world power at any point uh, leading into World War II. But really, uh, it's the emergence of the United States as a world power, for sure. Yeah, and if you look at, um, you know, in my opinion right now, the three world powers would be uh, the United States, Russia, and China. And if you look at that, um, you know, the United States and China heading into the 1900s were not world powers. Um, on any, by any stretch. You could argue the Soviet Union was Absolutely. in some yeah, ways, no but idea. they were pretty isolated under the Tsarist system. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, a absolutely. lot of change in the 1900s, even just in the first half. Yeah. So, yeah. hey, that's, I mean, I, that's period I, I seven, and that's all of our reviews. Here because we've, our hot take now is just the fact that we've revealed the, uh, the, the connection between uh, you know, naval incidences and uh, American involvement in just about every war we've had. So there it is. Somebody write a book about that because I think we might have just we might have just uncovered something. Big. So if so, if you see something going right. on with the U.S. Uh, a ship because, getting boy, sunk, look out. Uh, you know, I think we could even go back to some military actions like uh, what was it Trafalgar? There was some stuff going on way back when. Um, yeah, boy, that is that is interesting. I never would have yeah. thought that. <laughs> so there you go. That's what I got. There you have it. Hey, hey everybody, uh, good luck on your just, uh, exam. Just as we'll a piece of advice here, uh, we're going to be week. rolling out some content-specific review pieces for you, meaning we're going to ask you to go through and just pull out some stuff, some specific content. A lot of what we've been reviewing has been, I think, skill-based, so now we're just going to ask you to dig in and, 
and uh, look through some of that content because, of course, the more specific you can be on this DBQ, the better off you're going to be. Um, my advice uh, would be get this done earlier on in the week. Uh, maybe not, you know, like Monday, but don't wait until Friday to do it because, it, well, look, let's put it this way. If you do it at Friday at three o'clock, you're going to be done with your exam and that's not going to help you at all. Um, so I would say midweek would be a good time, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, because this will kind of have all that content fresh in your mind um, for the exam, which is Friday at two o'clock, right? So it, I, I think my last piece of advice That's right. is do Big stuff. make sure that you can get onto the AP website and navigate to where you need to navigate and download what you need to download or whatever it is. Um, and if you can't, reach out to Mr. Hall, reach out to the AP and make sure you get what you need. Um, I don't think Bodwin and I are in a place to like walk you through it, mostly because it's hard, really hard to do remotely. But um, Mr. Hall can connect you with people if you need it. And the AP people, I think, especially this year, would be willing to help you with that for sure. Yeah, and we'll, we'll send out a link in our email um, that will have, you know, some kind of prep yeah. steps you can take as well. Uh, that's just straight from the college yeah. board that you've probably already seen. But, but make sure that's all working because to study and prep for this for a year right. – and then to get on there and not have uh, don't leave your browser ready and sure. not have all these other things ready would be really tough. So, yeah, absolutely. But hey, we're feeling confident about you. Absolutely. So, uh, Good luck, everybody. So best of luck and let us know if you need anything. Yeah, I, I feel so much. Thank you, South Korea, for listening. Connected with the world now because somebody in South Korea decided to listen to what I had to say. I don't know why they did. Did. Anyway. All right, Love everybody, it. be well. I don't either.